I just finished a retreat with the marvelous and playful human, Locke Kelly, who teaches mindfulness in such a unique, simple, and accessible way. His short glimpse practices allow you to quickly shift out of your small ego center and into the already fully awake, alive, spacious, connected, and compassionate awareness that is simultaneously everywhere and nowhere. That is all things and no thing. Locke has been a wonderful teacher to me, and you can find his influence in many of my own practices. His effortless mindfulness approach takes the wisdom of ancient non-dual practices like Dzogchen and integrates them with modern neuroscience and psychology, making them more accessible to those of us who grew up in the West. And he brings such a good sense of humor and playfulness to the practice, which really lightens the mood and allows your heart to naturally soften and open. Now, because some of you may not be familiar with the difference between non-dual practices and the more traditional practices like Vipassana, which I tend to emphasize in my meditations, let me just take some time to clarify the two approaches, which in the end really point to the same thing and no thing. Then, I'll finish out the episode by introducing Dog Zen, a funny, clever, yet profound non-dual practice that Locke introduced me to. In spiritual life, we each come to meditation practice with some aim or goal, whether it's enlightenment, freedom from suffering, peace, truth, understanding ourselves or our purpose, or whatever else it may be. But no matter our aim, each of us will have to awaken to the Dharma, to the law, and the true nature of things, the true nature of our own heart and mind, if we're to be successful in our endeavor. Now, historically, there are two approaches to awakening. There's sudden awakening, the non-dual approach, which includes practices like Dzogchen and Advaita, or there's gradual awakening the ostensibly dualistic approach, which includes the more traditional practices out of India, as well as Vipassana, which comes from the Theravada, the oldest tradition in Buddhism. With sudden awakening, or the non-dualistic approach, the idea is to start with awakening. This seems like a no-brainer, right? I mean, why wouldn't we start with awakening if that's an option? Well, Yeah, it actually is an option. We can definitely start with awakening. And in fact, many people have taken this route quite successfully. And Locke himself would argue that taking the goal as the path is the way to go. But how can we start with the very goal we're trying to achieve or seek? Well, that's just it. The premise of the non-dualists is that there is nothing to achieve or seek. We are already awake. Non-dual, awake awareness is already the true nature of mind. The problem is that our thoughts distract us from noticing our true nature. Attention collapses into thoughts, and we end up identifying ourselves with them, like a wave who forgets it's seamlessly connected to and a part of the ocean. So we just need someone to point us back to our true nature, to the non-dual, awake awareness that is. To clarify this, let me flush out this notion of non-duality a bit. First, I don't mean oneness or emptiness. 
That's only one side of the coin. When I use non-duality, I mean the fullness of reality, which is both the relative and the ultimate together. It is recognizing and embodying both the wave and the ocean, the self and no self. There is the world of people and things, and at the same time, there is no thing, the unborn and unformed. There is the ocean. Non-duality is the great paradox of being and non-being. So the relative and ultimate, they can't be separated. But they also can't be reduced to one. They exist together simultaneously. Awakening is the direct knowing and embodiment of these two levels at the same time. It is the inseparable intersection of compassion and wisdom, of the tender human heart and the unbounded mind. Mahaharaj said, When I look inside and see that I am nothing, that is wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that is love. And between these two, my life flows. The practice then with this approach is to recognize your true nature in the beginning and to keep coming back to it again and again. Sam Harris, who is another proponent of this approach, says it's like ringing a bell. You ring the bell and hear the sound, that is, you recognize your true nature. And once the sound fades, or you collapse into thought, you ring it again. So one way to kind of spark this awakening is through self-inquiry. When you have a thought, you can look for who or what is having the thought. And you can apply this to any aspect of experience. Who is having this sensation, feeling, emotion, etc. The more you look for yourself, the more elusive it will become. In Dzogchen, on the other hand, you receive pointing out instructions by a teacher, which are meant to immediately cut through the illusion of self. To shed light on this approach, I'll share Locke's encounter with Tolku Urgen Rinpoche, who is considered one of the greatest Dzogchen masters of his time, and who is also a teacher of Sam Harris's. So Locke, while studying psychology and spirituality in grad school, traveled to Sri Lanka, India, and Nepal to study meditation and other healing practices. And after studying Vipassana in Sri Lanka, he went to India, where he heard the Dalai Lama give a talk about non-dual approaches in Tibetan Buddhism. And in the talk, the Dalai Lama explained that the love and freedom we all seek is already equally within each of us. And there are methods for recognizing this awakening suddenly. Moved by the Dalai Lama's speech, Locke enthusiastically raised his hand and asked the Dalai Lama to point him to a teacher. The Dalai Lama suggested a teacher named Tulku Urgen Rinpoche in Nepal. So away Locke went to meet him at his hermitage on the slopes of the Kathmandu Valley. When Locke first received instructions from Tulku Urgen Rinpoche, it took only a few minutes. As Locke puts it, I became as calm and clear as after my 10-day deliberate mindfulness meditation retreats in Sri Lanka. But it was also a different type of calm. I felt alert 
compassionate, embodied, and energetically connected to everyone and everything. My emotions were more accessible and spacious, and I related to them directly in a loving way. I began to laugh as tears of gratitude flowed down my face. The pervasive feeling of anxiety, self-centeredness, and fear, which had always felt like a normal part of who I was, dissolved. What was here instead was a profound sense of well-being, unity, joy, and gratitude. This full expression lasted through the day and had faded a bit when I awoke the next morning, but it remained in the background, and more importantly, something fundamental had changed in me. Okay, so what were these magic instructions? Well, Tolku Ergen asked the students to place awareness in the corner of the room, not to focus their attention on the corner of the room from the small ego center in their head, but to be aware from the corner of the room. Then he asked the students to look back from the corner of the room to where they were sitting and to keep moving awareness through their selves, through the looker, to the space that had their backs, until they realized the awareness that was already wide open, awake, and free. If you're confused by these instructions, or don't know what the hell he's talking about, no worries. What I love about Locke's glimpse practices is that there are many doors he provides that lead to this open, awake, and embodied awareness. And some seem to work better for others, and even work better at different times, depending on your present circumstances. So I highly encourage you to check out Locke's work. Um, He's currently developing an app, which he tells me should be ready by May 1st. So I'll provide the link here once he releases it. Sam Harris also has some wonderful meditations that take this approach on his app, Waking Up. I highly recommend Sam's work for those of you who have an intellectual or philosophical leaning. He's among the clearest thinkers and communicators I know. And though I tend to emphasize the Theravada, I too provide free meditations that incorporate the non-dual approach. You can check out all my meditations on any of the podcast mediums under the title, The Space of Possibility. And I eventually, too, will develop an app, so stay tuned. But anyway, this non-dual approach isn't for everyone. You may find it confusing and even frustrating. Luckily, there's another way, the dualistic or goal-oriented approach. Though non-dual awake awareness is our true nature, when we've been conditioned to live on the relative level, as we all must in order to relate with one another and to the world around us, Vipassana may be the more accessible starting point, since you don't need to have had any insight into the true nature of consciousness. This approach comes from the Theravada, more specifically the Satipatthana Sutta, or the Discourse on the Establishments of Mindfulness. And this really is the root of all traditions of mindfulness. Anyway, here the Buddha provides us with what he calls the direct path to awakening. This is the direct path 
for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, of suffering and grief, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely, the four establishments of mindfulness, the Buddha. Here we develop energy, concentration, mindfulness, equanimity, and insight or understanding in a systematic way. We become established in the four pillars or foundations of mindfulness. One, the body. Two, feelings. Three, mind states and emotions. And four, dhammas, or the laws, processes, and faculties of mind and body, along with the various views or frameworks through which we can understand them. Here's another quote from the Satipatthana Sutta. Here, one lives contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly knowing it, and mindful of it, having overcome desire and ill will. He lives contemplating the feelings in the feelings, ardent, clearly knowing them, and mindful of them, having overcome desire and ill will. He lives contemplating consciousness in consciousness, ardent, clearly knowing it, and mindful of it, having overcome desire and ill will. He lives contemplating mental objects in mental objects, ardent, clearly knowing them, and mindful of them, having overcome desire and ill will. So as you can see, this approach takes a lot more work than the non-dual approach. It can seem a bit steep and intimidating. But I tend to emphasize it because not only will it lead to awakening if you put in the work, but it will also allow you to cultivate and develop a number of sustainable skills and faculties that are incredibly useful in everyday life. The more you put into it, the more it will carve you into a remarkably sharp, strong, aware, peaceful, composed, and loving person. With the fourth foundation, for example, when establishing mindfulness of dhammas, you learn to cultivate and balance what are called the seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And also in this fourth foundation is the Noble Eightfold Path, which cultivates things like nobility of speech and action. So there really is a lot of utility in the breadth and depth of training along this path from the Theravada. I will acknowledge, though, that it can be misleading for some people since it creates confusion at the outset by framing the goal in a way that makes you go looking for something outside of you. And if not outside of you, looking for something that you think you don't have. And many people do in fact get caught in this kind of endless striving, when in fact what they seek is already here, right under their nose. Consciousness is already free of self. So, yeah, it can seem contradictory. That's why, rather than taking a side, like many do, I encourage what Joseph Goldstein has coined the one dharma approach. Because it can be easy to get tied up or identified with one tradition or another, because we naturally like to belong to a group, why not become a global citizen? If we can remember to keep in mind our aim, to free ourselves from suffering, 
then we can look at every tradition and the tools they provide as a skillful means for liberation. What works for you right now? Cool, use it. And put the others back in the tool bag. You'll never know when they might end up serving you. Okay, let's go ahead and do some dogs then. Let's be everything our dog believes us to be. Which is everything, right? They tend to know us better than we do. They have such faith in us. They can feel that infinite source of being within us. The great love. And at the same time, they are so in tune with our ever so tender and vulnerable human heart. They know when we're hurt. They know when we're in pain. And they also know exactly what we need to heal. The boundless and unconditional love that can hold our hurt and our pain. The undying love that can take on those emotions which are too big for our small ego to hold on its own. The tender and supportive hand on our back. Once we embody that love and hold within it all the parts of ourself, all the parts that are hurt and need to be seen, then, just like we do with our dogs, we train it to stay, stay, stay. Anyway, you're a remarkable human. Take care of yourself. Remember, you're never alone. You have love at your back. Until next time.